And please turn to Colossians chapter 4. We'll be looking at Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, through the end of the chapter and the end of the book in verse 18. Our final installment this morning in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossians 4, 2 through 18. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God, who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church that is in his house. Now when this epistle was read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, once again to this book of Colossians, I pray that your spirit would illuminate our hearts to receive it, that we would glean from it those things which you would desire us to know and that you would desire us to do. And most of all, that we would be confirmed and know for certain the gospel of Jesus Christ and have the hope that comes in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So why are you here? I'm not talking about why are you in church this morning. I'm glad you're here. But in the bigger picture of life, why are you on this earth? What is the purpose of your life? One of the great and vexing questions of the human experience, this is. Everyone wants to have a purpose. We struggle we languish, we become 
indifferent and detached if we believe that we don't have a purpose. And so we try to find a purpose where we can. The highest selling Christian book in history besides the Bible is the 2002 work by Rick Warren, The Purpose Driven Life. It sold over 33 million copies worldwide. This is not an endorsement, recommendation of the book, but just showing that a lot of people are looking for the answer to this question of purpose. Perhaps another more recent and currently popular example, especially among young men, is Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson. He's found a huge following among young men with things like his 12 rules for life, an antidote to chaos. After all, chaos is a bad thing and avoiding it would seem like a good purpose. And so because of this quest for purpose, Peterson, too, is selling all kinds of books as a very popular podcast and other media and has accumulated a massive following by seeking to answer this question of purpose. But beyond books and other media, this quest for purpose takes people to great lengths and it can press us into deep personal crisis. Who am I and what am I here for? Is our purpose to be found in our work? Creating and making things that make the world a better place, that leave some kind of legacy? Is our purpose to accumulate wealth and resources? Is our purpose to be found in other people, our family, our friends, children, grandchildren? Or is our purpose to be found in knowledge, learning, study, philosophy, invention? These are perhaps some of the most fundamental questions of human life, this looking for a purpose. Well, mercifully and helpfully, God in his word has given us answers in our quest for purpose. In our final look at Paul's letter to the Colossians, it helps us to guide us in our quest for purpose. We see here in this final chapter Paul's last practical exhortations to the Colossian church, as well as some information about his ministry and greetings and commendations to those who are a part of it. Now, what binds all these elements in this chapter together, because it might seem at first read like it's a little all over the place, but what binds all of these things together is that they are consistent with Paul's purpose, which is also our purpose. Our purpose in life, ultimately, and above and beyond all other things, is to glorify Christ and to make his name known in the world. I'll say it again, our purpose in life, ultimately, above and beyond all other things, is to glorify Christ and make his name known in the world. That's it. That's what this life is really about. Anything else is secondary to this. Everything else we do is a means toward these ends. And so we will look at this purpose today in three points. First, we will see that Christ is our purpose in prayer. We see this in verses 2 through 4. Second, Christ is our purpose in presentation, how we present ourselves to the world, how we relate and interact. We see this in verses 5 and 6. And then finally, we see that Christ is the purpose for all people in verses 7 through 18, the end of the chapter. So prayer, presentation, and people. These are our three points 
for this morning. First, we see that Jesus Christ is our purpose in prayer. So in verse 2, Paul picks up where he left off last time in these practical exhortations to this church. Remember from before that he has been treating matters like family and work relationships. He had addressed also the word dwelling richly in the church in its teaching and in its singing. But here now he briefly addresses the issue of prayer. Now, this is not the first time in Colossians that Paul talked about prayer. You can remember all the way back to the first chapter, verses 3 and following of Colossians 1. Paul described how he, had, how he has prayed for the Colossians. He expressed his joy for how they had true faith and were bearing fruits in gospel proclamation. And Paul prayed for their continued growth and perseverance and maturity. But now, here at the end of the letter, Paul instructs the Colossians in how they ought to pray. So he exhorts the Colossians to continue earnestly, to be continually devoted to prayer. So prayer is not to be just an occasional thing, you know, something we do on Sundays, something we do once in a while when we're in a crisis and the need arises. Prayer is to be a continual way of life for the Christian. And Paul here gives some attributes and particulars of prayer. First, prayer is to be awake and aware. Whereas the New King James, which I read from, says it, vigilant. This is a word for being watchful, but elsewhere used in the Bible to describe being awake, being aware. It is, for instance, the word that Jesus used in the Garden of Gethsemane to implore his disciples to remain awake while he went away to pray. There it had a more literal connotation of being awake. Here it is more of an analogy, just as we are awake from sleep, living our lives. Our prayer ought to be lively and aware and concerned with our situation, concerned with what's going on around us. We should be praying not only for our lives, but for our churches, for our cities, for our nation and our world. And we should pray about those things that are for God's glory and for the good of his children. But second, prayer, as with so many other things that we have seen in Colossians, is to be done in thanksgiving. Because of the great salvation we have in Christ, because of his glory, because of his status as the God-man who rules over us and has redeemed us, we live lives and carry out actions that show our thankfulness to Christ. When we pray, we remember that we were once dead in our sins and trespasses before Christ. We were hopeless. We were helpless. But Christ entered into creation. He obeyed the law that we could not, died to pay the penalty of sin that we owed, and was raised from the dead. And in doing this, he has raised us to new life. This is our hope in the gospel. But this also informs how we pray. When we pray, we do not seek our own things. We do not express arrogance or pride or entitlement to God, demanding that he give us what we want and chastising him when he does not. When we pray, we are to be thankful for all the blessings that God has given us. And thus we pray, always mindful of those blessings. Whatever we have is better than what we had and better still than what we deserve. And so this helps us to maintain a proper posture before God when we approach Him 
with our needs in prayer. And third, in verses 3 and 4, we see that our prayers are to have a particular concern for kingdom work, for those laboring for it. Paul is asking the church in Colossae to pray specifically for him and for his companions as they work for the gospel. Now, do you remember where Paul was when he wrote this letter? He was in prison. He had gone to Rome, and he was put in prison awaiting trial. And eventually, Paul's testimony for the gospel would result in his death there. According to tradition, he would be led outside the city gates, and he would be beheaded for his testimony of Christ. That's where Paul's at. That's what Paul is going through. But despite his own difficult and desperate situation, the first concern of Paul's request for prayer is for opportunities for the gospel. He asks for prayer that God would open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. Even in prison, even in the face of great suffering, Paul wants Christ's gospel to be proclaimed and heard. Even in bondage, Even in persecution, Paul was not going to back away from the testimony of Christ. And he wanted the saints at Colossae to pray to provide him with more opportunities and the strength to act on them, even as he himself is suffering for the testimony of Christ. Do we have the eternity-minded focus to ask for prayer and to pray like this? I mean, when we pray, what are we usually praying for? God, give us stuff. God, make us well. God, get us out of this bad situation. Paul is not asking for his bad situation to end. He's not asking to get out of prison. The open door he's asking for, it's not a literal one he's going to walk through, but rather one that the gospel is going to go through to bring salvation to people. And so he asks in verse 4 that when he has the opportunity to speak, he would do so clearly and effectively. Paul's primary purpose in prayer, the same prayer that he gave in chapter 1 for the Colossians, and the prayer he asks for here is Christ. Not so much Paul and what he wants or needs, but that Christ would be glorified and proclaimed through his gospel. And so that is our first point. Christ is our purpose in prayer. But now we turn to our second point, which is the glory and the proclamation of Christ in our presentation, how we present ourselves, how we conduct ourselves in a watching world. We see that this applies to our walk and this applies to our words. So Paul here exhorts Christians to walk in wisdom towards those outside the church. Our conduct and our deeds in the world matter. Now, this is not a particularly popular teaching in our day. We live in a time where even many Christians bristle at the idea of their conduct being judged. But the scriptures are very clear in passages such as this, that as Christians, we need to live in such a way that our lives reflect the work of God in our lives and glorify and honor Him, and do not bring disgrace to Him. Nothing is more damaging to the church's witness 
in the world than when Christians live in unrepentant sin. When we claim the name of Christ and then live lives characterized by disobedience to his commands, it is an affront to Christ and it is destructive to the gospel mission in the world. And it is sadly prevalent. As just one example, a 2019 Pew Research study found that over a third of those who would identify as evangelical Protestants, they now believe that it is acceptable for unmarried couples to cohabitate. When someone who claims Christ does this, this is a public rejection of Christ's word and authority. And it shows that we don't really take God and his word seriously. When Christians conduct themselves unethically in business, they're known for doing bad work or taking advantage of people, this undermines gospel witness. While we recognize that we are still sinners living in a fallen and sinful world, and we all do sin, if we are living lives publicly characterized by sin and not characterized by repentance, we have a serious problem. To walk in wisdom towards outsiders is to, as best as we are able, live a life that reflects the word of Christ to people. Paul also includes here in verse 5 an exhortation to reclaim the time. Because we have a purpose of glorifying Christ and making his gospel known, we should spend our time and our resources toward that end. We should not be a people who are Christians for a few hours on Sunday and then never again incline our hearts and actions toward Christ for the rest of the week. All of life, all of our time, all that we are belongs to Christ. Furthermore, if we believe the truth of this gospel, that Christ has died to save sinners, and that there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved, this message has urgency. God is sovereign over whom he saves and who he does not, but he has chosen us as his people to be salt and light to the world, to proclaim this truth and live lives that reflect this truth to those around us. Christians are not only to reflect the glory of Christ in their conduct, but in their words. Our speech should be gracious. Christians should not be known as rude or self-seeking or arrogant or boastful. We are a people who have been shown immeasurable grace, and so we speak graciously to others. We show grace as we are shown grace. We forgive as we have been forgiven. We speak the truth but with patience and gentleness. Now, if this is true, we should not speak what is false. We should not slander or gossip. We should be careful what we say, what we write, what we post. We should not be characterized by the malice and divisiveness and rage of our present day. However, we do also see here that our speech should be seasoned with salt. Now, this is not salt, as we see in a common expression in our day, where if you're salty about something, it means you're bitter or angry. Rather, this is to be salt as in the salt of the earth, as Jesus spoke of in Matthew 5.13 and other places. Now, salt has several functions. It is a preservative. You put salt in something, it helps it to last longer. It prevents rot and corruption. We speak in such a way that is against sin and against wickedness in the world. 
but salt is also a seasoning. It adds flavor. So we can speak with a certain degree of wit and of humor and of creativity. We can speak in ways that, while still respectful and truthful, challenge people to consider Christ and his works and his word. This, so long as it is the right thing to say to the right person at the right time. This is Paul's concern in the rest of verse 6, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We have to be aware of who we're talking to and how we would best approach them. I think we get a more detailed description of what this kind of speech and conduct looks like from another of Paul's letters in Romans. We see in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 18, he writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There is a proper time and place to speak certain ways. There is a time to be confrontational. There is time for joy. There is time for sorrow. For instance, when someone has died, it may not be the best time to go off guns blazing about how that person might be in hell. Better instead to share grief and sorrow, but also point out how the gospel provides eternal hope and eternal life in the face of death. When someone is being cruel and rude, it is better not to return that in kind, but to be patient and enduring just as Christ was. So we are to speak and act with wisdom before the eyes of a watching world. But having looked at Christ as our purpose in our prayers and in our presentation, we now turn to our final point, Christ as the purpose for all people. Now in the remainder of this chapter, verses 7 and following, Paul provides a lot of names. Most of these names are people who are either with Paul and he is commending for their service and faithfulness, or they are people in the area he is writing near Colossae, and so he's encouraging and greeting them. Now, it can be easy when we reach sections like this at the end of these New Testament letters to ignore them or gloss over them. We can treat them almost like uh, a flyover country of the Bible, an area we're not interested in because there doesn't seem to be a lot going on. There's all these names that... We don't know who they are, and we don't know why they matter. But God has inspired by his Spirit every word of the Bible, including these lists of names. And if we start to look at who some of these people are, the significance of their appearance here, we have much to learn. We see that God makes use of all kinds of people to accomplish the work of his gospel in the world. So first, Paul talks about two men, Tychicus and Onesimus who delivered this letter to Colossae. Now, Tychicus was an associate of Paul's, and he, he delivered this letter. He also delivered the letter to the Ephesians. You see his name in Ephesians chapter 6. He is described in very similar terms to Epaphras, who you might remember is the minister to the church at Colossae. Now, Onesimus is a fascinating case. Onesimus was a slave. 
he served Philemon, a member of the Colossian church. And so he was sent with Tychicus and this letter, along with the letter to Philemon, where Onesimus is much more prominent, and he is sent on a mission of reconciliation. (laughs) Onesimus was a slave who rebelled and ran away. While he was away, under Paul's teaching, he became a convert to Christianity and a servant of Paul in his ministry. But because he had done this treachery to a fellow believer, Philemon, Paul sends Onesimus back to him with the letter to Philemon that the two may reconcile. Now this wasn't a small act. Onesimus had committed a crime. Philemon would have been in his rights to imprison or kill him. And further, Onesimus was a slave. Going back to Philemon meant giving up his freedom and his service to Paul. But Paul sends Onesimus and implores Philemon to receive him not only as a slave, but as a brother. Onesimus, a rebellious runaway slave, becomes a faithful servant and even reconciled to the master he has wronged. Now next we see three other names, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus Justice. These are Jewish names, and Paul mentions them as being of the circumcision. That means that they are Jews. Whereas the subsequent three, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas, those are Gentile names. Now in this letter, Paul has treated the issue of returning to Jewish ceremonial observance and division between Jews and Gentiles. That was part of the Colossian heresy that he was attacking. So what Paul is showing here by listing these names, among other things, is he is showing the unity that ought to exist in the church between Jews and Gentiles, between people of different races, different ethnicities, things of that sort. Now Aristarchus, he was a Jew and he was from Thessalonica. He was a Thessalonian. He appears in Acts chapter 20 and is described as such. He was one of Paul's traveling companions. He had been present at the riot in Ephesus in Acts 19. He was a part of Paul's ill-fated voyage to Rome where they were shipwrecked in Acts 27. And now we read that Aristarchus is a fellow prisoner. It may not be in a strictly literal sense. For instance, at the end of Philemon, Epaphras is said to be a prisoner, though other things we've seen in Colossians seem to indicate that Epaphras is free. So it could be that Paul is calling him a prisoner, calling them both prisoners, to illustrate the nature of their bondage to Christ, that they are captive to Christ. But it may also be that Aristarchus was there in prison with Paul. Now Aristarchus is not particularly famous. He's not one of the well-known figures of the Bible, certainly not on the level of Paul. And yet he seems to be with Paul in some of his darkest times and is a faithful, if uncelebrated, servant of the Lord. Most people who labor for Christ in this life probably end up like this. Faithful and here, but then they die in obscurity and are largely forgotten. Now Mark is an interesting case here. This is the same Mark who is credited with writing the second gospel, the gospel of Mark. But if you read and studied the book of Acts, in chapter 15, verses 36 through 41, a division occurs between Paul and Barnabas, who had been ministering together to that point, because of Mark. 
Barnabas wanted Mark to go with them on their next journey. But Paul had found fault with Mark because Mark had abandoned his work. He wasn't doing what he should have been doing on their previous missions. In fact, the separation was so sharp that not only did Mark not go, but Paul and Barnabas parted ways. They didn't work together again after this. And yet here, years later, Mark has reappeared as a servant of Paul. This probably came after a period where Mark worked with Peter because Mark appears in Peter's letters. And Mark is likely recording Peter's account when he writes his gospel. But Mark is an example of someone who had sinned, someone who had failed, and yet later came back. He's not only reconciled to Christ, but reconciled to Paul and becomes a faithful servant of the gospel with him. In fact, so much so that in 2 Timothy 4.11, in the last chapter of Paul's last letter, as Paul was on the brink of death, he asks for Mark to be brought to him as he is very useful for ministry. So this shows us that even if we fail in our service to the Lord, in our labor for the gospel, it doesn't have to be the end. Here is someone who failed significantly early on, and yet God still used him in a powerful way. We don't know much about this Jesus justice, but we do know about Epaphras. We've seen him before. He's the Colossians' own minister, who seems to be for a time with Paul in Rome. Maybe a prisoner, maybe not. We don't know for sure. But he is the faithful servant as he was introduced in chapter 1. He was teaching the Colossians truth in the midst of false teaching. Living for and serving Christ may come with resistance. And Epaphras has faced this resistance, which is the occasion for this letter. But note here also Epaphras, it begins the list of the Gentiles, those who are not ethnically Jewish. Next we see Luke. Luke is, of course, the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He is, as we see here, a physician and a frequent traveling companion of Paul. By the end, in 2 Timothy, he's one of the last companions of Paul who is still with him, who doesn't desert him. Now we could say that Luke plays something of a support role in ministry, record-keeping, compiling his gospel in the book of Acts, providing an account of the events. He's also likely tending to Paul's health and well-being, so this shows that Different vocations, even not ministry vocations necessarily, can still be useful in the work of the kingdom. Now, the last of the six names is Demas. Now, Demas is a sad story because the other time he appears, he also appears in 2 Timothy 4, the last chapter of Paul's last letter, where it said that Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me, and gone to Thessalonica. It seems here that for Paul to use such strong language of loving the world, it would mean that Demas is an apostate. He has walked away not only from Paul's ministry, but from the faith altogether. The sad truth is that some of those who are apparently Christian, including those who labor in Christian ministry for a time, they fall away. They leave the faith, they leave the church. We see in our day this trend of deconversion and deconstruction where those who were perhaps even publicly prominent Christian figures 
authors, musicians, even ministers are deciding for whatever reason that they're not really Christians anymore. Now we know that no one who is truly in Christ can walk away or fall away. Those who leave, leave because they were never truly apart. 1 John 2.19 describes it like this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they do go out. But they... Now this does not mean that God does not use people for a time. I can think of people I've known, friends ministers, others who've helped me along the way that are now living in open rebellion and rejection of God. It's a sad reality. It's heartbreaking. These are people I love, people I care for, and it can be hard to deal with that. A lot of people I grew up with in the church, served alongside in college, and even in adulthood, they have walked away seemingly from the faith. Now, this does not mean that we should abandon hope. For those we know who have left. We just talked about Mark, whose early life and ministry was characterized by significant failure, and yet he returns. So we can pray for those who fall away, that God would truly bring them to faith and repentance, that they would be like Mark and not like Demas. Now after this, Paul adds some of his own greetings and instructions for reading, he asked for this letter to be read in Laodicea, that nearby church, and then he also includes a letter to Laodicea to be read in Colossae. We don't have this letter. We don't know what it is. The books we have in Scripture are the books we are supposed to have. They are the ones that God in his providence has preserved for us to have and to study. Paul also gives an exhortation about ministry to Archippus, who is probably pastoring the Colossian church in the interim while Epaphras is away with Paul in Rome. So he asks the church to encourage Archippus to fulfill his calling from the Lord, as all churches should do for those who labor for them. So, we have seen in this long list of names at the end of Colossians some sketches, some pictures of service in Christ's kingdom, Some of the different people that God uses in different ways for his purposes. They all have, though, this same one unifying purpose. The glory of Christ and the furthering of his gospel through his church. For this is truly the ultimate purpose of all we say and do and for all people. So... As we draw to the end of Colossians, having looked at Christ as our purpose in prayer, in presentation, and for all people, we are confronted with this question. Is Christ our purpose in our lives? Do we pray as we ought, diligently and for the furthering of Christ's work with an appropriate attitude of submission and humility? Do we live honorable lives before the watching world? Are we known as Christians or as hypocrites, those who look and act just like anyone else? And then finally, are we serving God as we ought, whatever station we are in? And then most of all, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is our purpose, is it real to us? Do we truly believe it? There's no way to life or salvation apart from Christ. Jesus Christ fulfilled the perfect righteousness under the law that we fallen sinners could not. 
And he died to pay the penalty of our sins, to turn away the wrath of God. And then he was raised from the dead. And with that, raising us, his people, to a new life. The gospel is a free gift for all who will repent and believe. Do you trust in Christ today? Will you trust in Christ today? And if you are in Christ today, how are you making his glory known in the world around you? How do you pray? How do you act? How do you speak? Are you willing to be used by God even in costly and difficult ways in whatever station he has placed you? This is a question for all of us, one we must wrestle with. Christ's glory is what we ought to live for. And so may we all so live. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us. We thank you for this book of Colossians and the many things that it has had to teach us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and for his saving gospel, his life, his death, and that his righteousness becomes our righteousness by faith. I pray that in light of this glorious truth that we would live the lives that we ought, wherever you have stationed us, wherever you have placed us, we would be diligent to pray, that we would walk carefully before a watching world, and that all people that you have purposed to draw into this purpose would come in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.